welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope this finds you well. I'm Joel, and in today's podcast, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I was just speaking with Jeremy Lent, and Jeremy is an author and a thinker, uh, a beautiful thinker. He He's uh, written a book called The Web of Meaning, which came out early uh, this year, just early this year, I think summer 21, and we're talking about that book today. I think for me, you know, one of the things we've talked about on this podcast is yeah, not only what is it to do coaching, but what are the paradigms we live in collectively that, you know, we might be reaching the end of one dominant worldview or paradigm and transitioning to another. And that's what Jeremy's book about the web of meaning it's about. So we're going to talk today about what are some of the features of the current dominant worldview that lead to a loss of meaning, that lead to ecological devastation, um, you know, extracting resources out of the planet, many, many negative consequences, plus the beauty, the gifts that it has brought to the world. Important to honor those. We're going to talk about what are some of the features of this dominant worldview and how are they, some of the principles underneath them, actually being demonstrated to be wrong in current scientific understanding. We'll talk about how there can be many, many lessons learned from wisdom traditions from indigenous culture that actually has been, you know, excluded or negated or, um, you know, ex- exterminated by dominant Western thinking and Western kind of colonialism that we can actually bring back or that we can embrace, you know, these worldviews which actually are, again, being backed up by modern science. So we'll talk about the old paradigm. We'll talk about the some of the potential features of a new paradigm, things like um, fractal flourishing. Uh, we'll talk about eudaimonia uh, as a key concept. Um, system integration. These, I think, have high relevance to the work that we do as coaches as we support leaders. And by leaders, I mean everyone, really, as we move through these times of disruption. So I really highly recommend you you kind of pull up a chair, grab a cup of tea, and immerse yourself in this podcast. Maybe you're cycling through your city or driving a car, but you know this one is one to listen to. So Jeremy Lent. Let me say a few more words about Jeremy. Jeremy Lent, described by Guardian journalist George Monbiot as one of the greatest thinkers of our age, as an author, a speaker whose work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways towards a life-affirming future. His award-winning book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, explores the, the way humans have made meaning from the cosmos, from hunter-gatherer times to the present. And his new book, the one I've just mentioned, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, offers a coherent and intellectually solid foundation for a worldview based on connectedness. And that's the key connectedness that could lead humanity to a sustainable flourishing future he's the founder of the non-profit leology institute dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview that can enable humanity to thrive sustainably on the earth he lives with his partner in berkeley california all right so let's dive in here oh if you are inspired by this podcast i'd appreciate it if you would share it And if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about podcasts that come out or things that we create that are not this podcast, then you can head to coachesrising.com. Scroll down there. You'll find a sign up box. Put your name in and you're in the community. All right. So here's the podcast. 
with Jeremy Lent. So Jeremy, it's good to be with you. I'm excited to, to speak about your work today. How, how are you doing? Oh, do, doing great. Thanks, Joel. And I'm, I'm feeling the same way. Really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, I, I've been reading your newest book, The Web of Meaning, and I, um, it really speaks to something that we've been talking about on the podcast, which is, you know, what's the, the, what's the old paradigm that we're being invited to let go of and transition through into some, something new? What is that? Right. And I, I must say, like, it's a brilliant book and uh, disturbing book mm. and, um, you know, uh, but also also offers, you know, some some um, yeah, some perspective on what could come in and help us navigate these times. But I think it's a lot to play for. So um, and we're going to talk about that book a lot today. Right. I'm just I'm just curious, like what inspired you to write it? Mm. Mm. Well, right. It was um, really that book was. Um, it was for me a process of writing uh, about my own journey over the last mm. 10 to 15 years or so. Um, in fact, the, uh, the two books I've written in the last few years, one was called The Patterning Instinct, uh, a history, a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning. And then this one is called The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. So the common thread is meaning. And really for me, um, I went through a process of deep transformation where the first part of my life, um, the things I'd built up kind of collapsed around me. And I was really asking myself, what is truly meaningful for me in my life? And I didn't want to take somebody else's word for it. And so I did, I really kind of conducted my own search a little bit like peeling layers of an onion, everything that somebody told me or some insight seemed to be, I'd kind of question that and go deeper. And that led me over a number of years to really piece together my own deep understanding of where meaning actually arises in life. Um, and a part of that was, for me, the desire to share with the world what I sensed, what I sensed was uh, some, some important ways of recognizing actually not just meaning itself, but how that impacts our world around us, how it impacts humanity's future, basically. Mm. And just, I know you could probably say a lot about this and we'll yeah. talk about it, but how, how do you see meaning impacting mm. us? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it starts from this sort of foundational uh, concept, which comes later in the book because it sort of builds up to this place, but recognizing that meaning itself is a function of connectedness. And once we kind of understand that and we actually realize that Meaning doesn't exist in some sort of point, but it, it exists in the relationships between things. And the, the deeper we recognize that how we're embedded in basically this web of meaning, which is why um, what the title is about, once we realize how much we're embedded in that, we also realize that we can separate ourselves out from all the other stuff that's going on in the world. This kind of web of deep interconnectedness means that there's no such thing in my mind as a truly, um, as a sort of like a spiritual path looking for meaning, which kind of keeps the rest of the world separate and says, okay, I need to find meaning within myself first or something like that. There is no separate self separate from the interdependence of all other stuff. And that also means that there's no separation ultimately between spiritual meaning and 
uh, politics and engagement in the world around us, that each of these things have these interpenetrations, which is a big part of what I uh, sort of unfold in the book. Mm. Um, th maybe we could highlight how this is different from the current worldview, you know, because um, I think that uh, there, we're, we're, we're moving perhaps the, there's a breakdown of a kind of Newtonian um, Enlightenment era kind of uh, world mechanistic worldview. I'm just mm -hmm. curious, like what you what you would say about the the way we perceive who we are in the world, because, you know, there's also a meaning crisis taking place. You know, it's it's all up right now, isn't it? This ecological crisis, the meaning crisis, social crisis mm -hmm. um, how, like Maybe this worldview has led to this, you know, I'm, I'm just yes. curious how, how you would describe the worldview that is probably outdated. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. I mean, I think we can understand the dominant worldview as basically being based on separation. And there's these deep layers of separation that it's based on. And we can kind of trace it all the way back to the beginning of agriculture or whatever, or if we don't want to go that far back to the beginning of Western thought with the ancient Greeks and the kind of dualistic split universe. But that's almost like a whole other story of where it sort of comes from. But what it is in right now, this, this worldview of separation says things like, um, each individual is absolutely separate from other individuals. It looks at sort of identity as being just focused on the individual. It says um, that actually uh, humans are selfish. Um, and so they're not just individual, but they're selfish. And that's okay because all of nature is selfish. And we're told that, that basically evolution is driven by this notion of the selfish gene. And we're just kind of machines that are vehicles for these genes to trans to sort of do, replicate themselves. And so these are the things that we kind of have taken um, for granted in our dominant worldview. All nature is selfish. And above all, the, the, um, nature itself is not even, it doesn't have, we're not sort of connected with it. The humans are somehow fundamentally separate from nature. Um, and that leads to this sense that we just kind of implicitly assume it's okay to view nature as a resource, something to exploit. And, and basically, ever since the last few hundred years, we've been told that it's OK to build a whole economic system on exploitation, that capitalism um, works because each individual can just see not just the rest of nature, but all other people as essentially resources to exploit for each individual's own benefit. And then we're told that actually is what works in the best interest of everyone. That's the invisible hand. That's, mm. in an essence, is the worldview that most people live under the sway of. And what I show in this book is not just that it is, is dangerous and it's leading our whole civilization to a path of destruction and causing these crises of meaning as well as ecological crisis, it's plain wrong. Every one of these things that we think are scientifically valid have been absolutely dismantled by the findings in modern science in the last few decades. But people aren't yet fully aware of that. And that's part of what I'm trying to shift in um, in writing this book could you name like a few of those big ideas that that we've mm. gotten wrong you know we're not updated yeah, on. yeah well, sure well maybe uh, a good place to begin is this notion of the selfish gene and people oftentimes feel well that's just reality and we just have to deal with that and work through that and um and it's just been shown to be wrong on multiple counts i mean first off the the gene itself 
we have been told uh, is basically this thing that drives evolution. And in fact, we now find that it's kind of just one part of an interactive process where the cell um, turns on various um, aspects within the gene called gene expression, um, and the organism as a whole actually interacts with the environment. It's a much more complex layered uh, approach to evolution we understand. Um, but mostly, what evolutionary biologists now recognize is that, well, of course, there's competitiveness in the world and in nature. And in fact, if you look back since life began on Earth billions of years ago, the big steps in the complexity of life's evolution from single simple cells to complex cells, multicellular life, animals, ecosystems, all the rest of it, each of those steps came about as a result of different organisms learning to cooperate with each other in a, a process called mutually beneficial symbiosis. And it's that symbiosis, that way in which different organisms um, go beyond a zero-sum game, they work out how to actually work for each other's benefit, this led to the richness and beauty of our, of our world today. So it's almost the opposite of what we've been told. Right, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and um, I, I want to ask you about the, you know, you describe the the split that we create between um, logical consciousness and and what you call animate kind of consciousness. But right. I, maybe I don't know if there's any other big ideas you want to, um, you know, we ju you just shared about the selfish gene is yeah. one thing. Uh, we could go into that conversation about that split, but I don't know if there's another idea you want to share that that's been proven recently by science yeah. to. Um, well, maybe I'll touch on one more, and then I'd be happy to explore a little mm. bit about this split between conceptual and animate consciousness. I think that's yeah. actually very important, um, especially for anyone who's interested in work of uh, transformation of our own inner so organism, if you will, because I, I, I worry about the word self because even that has is a loaded term. But um, but just to before we sort of move on from some of those uh, things that we believe our dominant worldview tells us that are just plain wrong. Another key one is that humans are selfish. Yeah, because again, we think, well, clearly that must be. We look at what's going on in the world right now, and it seems like selfishness and competitiveness is fundamental to who or what we are. And again, what, um, in this case, more evolutionary biologists and anthropologists have discovered is that what actually makes humans different from other primates is that we evolved millions of years ago when we found ourselves, our sort of pre-human hominid ancestors found ourselves in the savannah and dangerous environments, that cooperation was the most successful strategy. Uh, and while humans share with other primates this kind of alpha male um, drive for dominance that, uh, that we see more in other primates, and we still see somewhat in humanity. What um, our ancestors learned is that cooperating was a more successful strategy. And as a result, over millions of years, we actually developed what are known as moral emotions. We, when we feel things like compassion, um, when we respect somebody for being generous, when we have a strong sense of fair playing, when we're even willing to put our own safety on the line because we just feel there's something wrong we want to fix. These are not 
This is not our mind overcoming our selfish gene. These are actually deeply felt moral emotions that we as humans evolved as part of developing a group identity. It's actually more natural for humans to actually um, identify with a group than just themselves as being separate from others around them. So that's just another example of what science now shows us is this wrongheaded belief that is still dominant in our culture. And what do you think when, I mean, went wrong there? Because of course there are still examples all around the world of how we collaborate, you know, right. it's happening all the time. But like you say, when we look on the news and, you know, we yeah. see like uh, climate change and things like this, it does, you know, and, and, and all kinds of wars and things, it doesn't seem like that's happening. Do you, do you have That's a, right. Well, yeah. I think that one of the biggest changes in the human experience actually arose uh, when, uh, we settled down as, you know, we spent 95 plus percent of human history as nomadic hunter-gatherers, and, and we evolved to work, to be together in, sm in relatively small bands. Then um, with the rise of agriculture and sedentism, we settled down into um, fixed communities. And that led to a shift in the balance between that sort of really ancient uh, desire for alpha males to, uh, to sort of dominate versus that group identity. Because as, got, as people got to be more successful in these sedentary, sedentary settled establishments, um, there was this bigger, bigger distinction of hierarchies of wealth. And somebody who got wealthy could afford to recruit other people to look out for his land for them and to put up fences. And that kind of ratcheted up to chieftainships and empires where the actual values of um, kind of aggression, conquering others, um, actually became and embedded in cultures and passed down over generations. It's what led to what Rianne Eisler, a really great cultural historian, um, calls like domination systems, which actually became dominant for in almost every agrarian civilization across the world, and then became even more dominant with the rise of the scientific revolution in Europe, where this sense of uh, some human, some sort of uh, notion of exploitation, seeing nature and other peoples as a resource for exploitation went to a whole other layer. And that's what we've inherited. So we need to recognize these ratchet effects of uh, where things went wrong, but recognized more importantly, that actually our core humanity leads us into other directions. And our society basically acculturates us to deny core aspects of our humanity, which is what leads to a lot of our sense of alienation and meaninglessness. Mm, yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get more onto that, how, how modern culture is kind of damaging us in ways. And but maybe it's good to bring in that, that, that um, thread I brought in around, because um, right. maybe this goes back to the thing you mentioned about Greek culture, where this split started to happen between, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, body and mind, or um, yeah, there was a logical mind and animate consciousness. Could you describe like what you right. mean by those two and the kind of journey we've made there? That that, that is right. It is right to um, trace that back to the ancient Greeks, and really, Plato was the one who was most successful in kind of describing this kind of split universe, and he did, he did a great job of putting out this notion that. Um, really, there is a, a split universe itself where there's a source of sort of divinity up there in the heavens where, where everything is perfect and eternal. And then you've got this polluted world below that we, we're kind of stuck in. But then he also posited a split human being 
uh, parallel with that, where we have a soul, which is what connects us with divinity, which is also the seat of our reason. And that soul is entombed, if you will, in a body. It's like imprisoned in a body. Um, and the soul wants to get out of the body and the body is polluted. And um, actually when we die, you know, the soul goes back to this eternal heaven. And what's fascinating is that Christianity, um, mainstream Christianity took these ideas from the ancient Greeks and developed it into this systematic cosmology of there's God in the heavens, um, there's uh, our soul in our bodies, and our bodies then drive us to sin and temptation. And um, the soul's job is to try to resist the temptation of the body so it can not sin and then go and spend eternity with heaven. Um, in heaven. And what is fascinating then is that the, in mo the modern pioneers of the scientific revolution, um, such as Bacon and Galileo, but Descartes was probably the most significant of these, actually took these ideas from Christianity. They thought they were kind of rejecting it and starting an, a new way of looking at things. What they basically did is transform that into our modern uh, quasi-scientific way of thinking. So the most famous statement in modern philosophy, of course, is Descartes' cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And if you unpack that statement, basically what it's saying is that the only source of identity is our thinking ability, our cognitive conceptual consciousness. Um, and every other part of, our, of what we think as identity doesn't really have a full existence, including our bodies. So Descartes was one of the ones who saw nature as a machine and actually specifically said, I see no distinction between machines created by craftsmen and those that we see all around us in nature. Because, and of course, other, other animals don't think like humans, so they don't have an identity, a true identity like humans do. That's what we inherited in our modern mainstream way of thinking. But what modern neurosciences understand actually is that we have way more than just this conceptual consciousness. We have what um, I term in the book animate intelligence or animate consciousness. And what we find is that what we, we think intelligence only exists in our sort of thinking capacity, but nature itself is far more intelligent than even our most advanced AI. Like, and not just other mammals who we know now have culture, we know, we believe uh, scientists have studied whales and cetaceans, and we understand that they have languages, maybe every bit as sophisticated as our human languages. Um, we recognize that elephants, you know, mourn their dead. I mean, these are profoundly deep, uh, deep creatures, but even plants that we just think of, we say, oh, somebody, someone's a vegetable if they're in a coma or whatever. Plants have profound intelligence. They have 15 different senses. They communicate with each other. Biologists have discovered they have what they call the wood wide web, where they actually, um, they actually don't just communicate, but transmit minerals to each other using the fungal network underground. And even single cells, um, of which we have like 40 trillion of them in our bodies, have incredible intelligence. They, they, they're transmitting uh, all kinds of different proteins and molecules in and out of them 
all the time. The complexity of a single cell is, is more than, a, than really one of our supercomputers could actually model out. And that's deep intelligence in nature is within us too. And that's what we can think of as our animate intelligence leading to our animate consciousness, which is actually, if, if you think of like a, a sort of iceberg in the water, we can think of our conceptual consciousness more like the little tip on top, this glimmering and gleaming in the sun, and that's what we see. But there's this deep animate intelligence way below, the, which is really where our unconscious lies, where our embodied intelligence lies. And that is really a, a foundational part of who each of us is as human beings. Just, just to, it's beautiful just to stay with fleshing that out more. So as you, as you describe, it's like it's our embodied intelligence, but I get that it's more than that. There's a, as you talk about it, I hear like there's this whole evolutionary kind of impulse and, and, and trajectory that, that has like, you know, brought us to this point in where we are, you know, me and you talking right now. And that there's a sense of that, that also being here as an intelligence and, 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 you know, our unconscious at the same time. So, but are you saying like, yeah, we can begin to kind of uh, drop into that more or, you know, we've, we've, we've excluded it, but we can actually make that journey towards including it more and more and that, that there's benefits to that. Yes, I'd say huge benefits, um, especially when we go back to what we were talking about earlier and recognizing how meaning itself arises from our interconnectedness. And for each of us as individual organisms on this earth, uh, once we actually begin to connect with our own animate intelligence within ourselves, our own animate consciousness, it allows us to really become full integrated human beings. So rather than consider our identity just to be in that uh, sort of prefrontal cortex, that thinking capacity, um, which is wonderful. This is not to disparage this incredible quality we have as human beings to be self-reflective, to set intentions, to think symbolically, to develop language. Fantastic. Um, but once we recognize that's not our only source of identity, we can use that conceptual intelligence to then redirect our uh, focus towards our embodied intelligence. And we can begin to shift our own identities to saying like, actually I am uh, basically a mind body organism. Uh, and once we do that, we become fuller, we can live our lives in a much more present and full moment to moment existence. And crucially, it allows us to connect with other embodied organisms all around us in the world. So that's that dominant split worldview from Descartes, I think therefore I am, is what leads to this sense of human separateness from the rest of life, because it doesn't think like we do, therefore it doesn't have a full existence. But once we recognize that each of us, and not just is part of life, but we are life. We have these 40 trillion cells that have evolved over billions of years and to have this incredible cooperative intelligence all around us. We realize that we it's ourselves are sort of emergent um, phenomena of that life. And then we can begin to see these deep connections that we have with all life around us, not just other mammals where we share feelings and uh, sensations and stuff, but even life that we think of as normally so separate, like uh, 
trees and plants or ecosystems, we realize that we're all part of this great unfolding of life. And it leads to a very, very different sense of identity. Mm. Yeah. And um, so just saying with the, the, the juxtaposition between, because reductionism, I think, is another feature of the current modern worldview. And um, when I hear you talk about what you're describing now, it sounds you know radically different. And so um, perhaps we could just name, you know, name like redux the reductionist worldview, yes. the consequence of that, and then kind of dive in fully to this, um, you know, this kind of um, bring in some of the wisdom traditions and how they see things. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, and um, reductionism is a very interesting aspect of everything I've been uh, describing, which actually, again, uh, to his credit, was uh, the very notion of reductionism was first sort of invented and defined by Descartes once again, um, who looked at trying to understand the world and looked at this possibility of science and actually wrote out like um, this kind of program of like, wouldn't it be good if we could divide the parts under investigation to smaller and smaller elements and really study those. Um, and then we can understand this kind of incredible machine of nature better. And to his credit, um, this is brilliantly effective. And this is really the basis of much of the scientific revolution and much of what we enjoy today in technology, whether it's um, the, um, say, the germ theory of disease and the um, understanding of hygiene and the development of things like antibiotics and antivirals right now, um, or uh, our ability to understand tech, um, electricity, where you and I can now speak to each other over thousands of miles th uh, thanks to these incredible developments of technology. All these are the results of reductionism. So one thing I want to make really clear is that uh, I think there's a lot to triumph in reductionism. It's, it's one of the greatest achievements of, human, uh, of, of our human species. And, but at the same time, it's been so powerful that many scientists and then others following their ideas have come to feel that that reductionism must mean that it's not just a, an effective way to understand the universe, but it's the only way to understand the universe. And and not as is the only way to understand the universe, but it is the way that you can understand everything about the universe. There's nothing about it that cannot be understood through this breaking down into the parts. That's what I call ontological reductionism, which is itself actually a leap of faith, every bit as big as believing in God or whatever it might be. It's not, it's, that's not actually a scientifically valid way of understanding it. What, um, what we now see, there's very many uh, different sciences. We can think of them as sciences of connection, uh, systems, uh, say systems biology or complexity science or chaos theory or any of these different sciences that look at the ways things connect, network theory, um, which recognize that actually in addition to this empirical validity of reductionism, that if you look at the complex ways in which systems connect, there are emergent qualities that you can only really understand by focusing on the connections between things rather than just the things themselves. That is what ontological reductionism basically closes its mind to. But that is what is required to get a much fuller understanding of basically any system that is not a machine, 
basically any system that is truly complex, any living system, and any human system that arises from our um, actual nonlinear humanity, all these systems require a different level of understanding over and above reductionism. Mm. Yeah, nice. Um, and, and maybe here we can weave in then the because you you know your book's called like um, the web of meaning and 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 actually under I think there's something in the title around marrying um, ancient wisdom with science and so right. um, you've already mentioned like systems theory and uh, these kind of things but what what kind of things from uh, the wisdom traditions do you feel that we need to kind of um, reclaim indigenous wisdoms you know um, what kind of ideas or ways of seeing the world could help us make a transition and support us. Mm. Yeah, and thank you for bringing in these other traditions because one of the things I find so fascinating, and this is really like a central theme of the book, is how these um, refutations of what we think is our, our dominant worldview, what we thought was scientifically valid, really point to the same truths that some so many of these wisdom traditions have pointed to for millennia. So one example uh, to your question is, if you look at indigenous traditions around the world, um, they can be in very different parts of the world, but almost all of them share the same understanding that um, nature basically is one big extended family. They actually sort of see nature as being like a parent and all sentient beings as being our relatives. And of course, um, you know, for hundreds of years, modern scientists would scoff at these, you know, this kind of sweet little and, and ridiculous indigenous ideas. Um, and now, of course, biologists recognize that it couldn't be truer, that actually we share about 50% of our DNA with a fruit fly and about 40% with a banana. I mean, we, we at the core level, we are absolutely all interrelated. We are all one family. So that's one foundational way in which that indigenous understanding um, can actually transform our own understanding of how we relate to the rest of life. And then another, just to, to give you another example, you, we were talking before about this split, right, between conceptual and animate consciousness and this Western view that our, our thinking conceptual uh, intelligence is what connects us with divinity. And then if you look at the Taoists, if you look at traditional Taoism, what's so fascinating is you see the exact opposite way of looking at what truly connects us with what is meaningful and divine in life. So the Taoists also recognize that as humans, we have this kind of split um, consciousness, that we have a sort of conceptual and inanimate kind of consciousness. But they saw it the other way around. They saw our animate consciousness, that, that deep, that sort of embodied intelligence within us as what connects us with the Tao. And they saw all of nature, all sentient beings, having what they call de, like, you know, they, the title of that great classic, the Tao De Ching, basically means the classic of Tao and de. And this word de looked at the inherent nature, the inherent power and intelligence of all living beings. And that's what they saw as being fundamental to how the Tao manifests in nature. So for them, the human way of thinking was what separated us from the Tao. And um, they had this notion of wu wei or effortless action, which was what happens if we allow ourselves to fall into our bodies and just 
be an embodied intelligence. And that to them was what we, what the, the goal of spiritual practice was about, to shed that thinking, uh, that the very thing that Descartes thought was what connected us with divinity, to actually shed that to the extent that we could actually be with the Tao and flow with the rest of nature. So that's just a fascinating uh, example of how different cultures could see like the same underlying reality, but see it in fundamentally different ways. I, I'd love to um, put something to you here and see what you make of it, because a lot of people listening to this are coaches. And <laughs> one of the things I've noticed in my work is that there's a, there's a place I can get with individuals or groups that I work with where it's like we, we, we fall into a flow state together. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, 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 if I contrast that to another way of being with a client, it's like, I'm maybe self-referencing myself thinking, yeah. okay, what am I going to do next? Uh, oh, how's this going? Like, uh, oh no, they want value. So how could I do something? But then these other places, like I described, it's like a, a flow state where, where my thinking is, is emerging out of the experience it has a very different quality. And even thinking can be very um, minimal or gone, you know, and yeah. there's like this deep attunement. And what I notice if, if I can be in that place with my client is there's a, then there's like this natural organic emergence that, that, that comes online and, and you can feel the aliveness in it. You can feel the, 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 it's very different quality than that kind of rational, like, uh, you know, wants to kind of chart a path to a pre pre um, ordained destination. So yes. I wonder if that speaks into what you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I think you described it so, so beautifully, but part of this uh, recognition of going where these new insights take us and again, this has been discovered and explained quite clearly by cognitive neuroscience, is that there is this coherence that arises from shared group identity. Um, I mean, one of the things that cognitive neuroscience now recognizes is these mirror neurons that actually most social mammals have, but we have them as human beings, where we actually, um, like if we see the action of somebody else, we actually mirror that in our own bodies in a sort of as if uh, kind of neural network that goes through our bodies. So we actually, that's like a core uh, part of our ability to empathize, but we also attune with other, um, other people in groups um, where our actual neural network hits resonances that actually uh, in the same way that you can imagine like a freeform jazz uh, quartet or whatever, playing together, not with some, uh, some score of like, this is exactly what we're meant to do, but they riff off each other and they're kind of in tune, literally attuned with each other. And what emerges is this beautiful emergent next level quality of this music that is far greater than any of them could do just by adding up their separate parts. So that's what group coherence is about. And it's very much how we as humans evolved to be. That's why as humans, we develop music from very early times. And even before we develop language, we actually develop like this rhythmic coherence to kind of attune together as groups. And that's what's happening when you're, when you're in that place. That's where um, separate, going down below that pure conceptual thinking consciousness of just language alone and this linear, where do we go next, allows us to actually more deeply connect with others 
which allows that transformation, whatever it is we're working on, to really take place in a far more meaningful way. Because it's only when something becomes embodied that it really stays with us as an organism, rather than just becoming some idea that um, we might have, but that doesn't necessarily relate to a whole full deep neural network of who we are as organisms. Mm. And, and so all these things that I hear you talking about, you know, this, what you just described and the Taoism and, and, and um, you know, systems thinking, cogn cognitive neuroscience. Um, right. You know, I'm thinking of people like Daniel Siegel with his idea mm. of Mui. You know, it's like exactly. all pointing to that we, we've held on to this idea of, um, you know, we're this separate entity, you know. Um, right. I'm here, you're there. And then, you know, that can lead to then, well, I'm going to look after my in interests. But yeah. what I hear you saying is that, no, it's it's like it's not we're we're interconnected on these fundamental levels that that actually our very identity is made up of one another, you know, and and of the, yes. the universe. And I, that's what I want to just tease out a bit a bit more. Like it's not just like a nice idea we're all interconnected. Like yeah. everyone gets COVID, <laughs> so we have to stay inside <laughs> and you know stockpile toilet paper, you know, whatever. But right. it's like no, it's on a on a on a this really fundamental level yes exactly that that is so right and these 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 interconnections are all around us it's just that we don't tend to see them uh primarily because our culture has made them invisible by re refusing to accept that they're even there in fact you you mentioned dan siegel who's a brilliant writer and the, yeah, the founder of this whole field of interpersonal neurobiology, which is um, really explores so much of what I'm describing. And I refer to him a number of times in my book, in fact. And he has this wonderful analogy. That, imagine um, during the daytime, you look up at the sky and what do you see? You see a blue sky and some clouds and, and the sun. Um, what you don't see is like when, once that sun has set, if you look up at the same sky, you'll see all these stars, right? And this amazing, like all these galaxies out there and in the sky above you. Um, they were there all along, but you just didn't see them because the sun's light obliterated your ability to see them. So similarly with our interconnection, it's there all the time. It's just if our dominant culture um, and tells us this is how it is, it kind of blocks out our ability to recognize what's been there all along. And um, there's this, I mean, j just to quite explore this idea even further, there's this great uh, tradition in China uh, called um, the Neo-Confucian tradition, which developed about a thousand years ago in Song Dynasty China, which I write about a lot because it actually incorporated some of the best ideas of Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism into a very comprehensive understanding of the universe. And they developed this idea that all the, the universe basically was comprised of what they called qi, which we can think of as like energy and or matter, like stuff, the stuff of the universe, um, and li, which they describe as the interconnecting patterns, the organizing principles by which qi, the qi manifests in the world. And they viewed the study of li as one of the most important things that you can do. So the Li is this studying those interconnections between things. And they, they developed a concept called REM, which basically refers to this kind of 
almost like this profound, deep recognition, almost an unconditional love, if you will, but this recognition of the deep interconnectedness of all things. And they had these profound insights where they would sort of recognize that as a human being, we're kind of embedded in like um, the heavens and the earth and all living uh, beings are our brothers and sisters and all things are our companions. Beautiful notion. But what's so fascinating is that if in, in Chinese, the word for numbness is buren, which is basically no ren. And I find this so interesting because if you think about it, what it's basically saying is um, what, what they're recognizing is that this interconnection is there just in the same way that if somebody touches my hand, I feel it. But if I'm numb, then I don't feel it. Doesn't mean they're not touching my hand. It means that my neural signals are not actually transmitting to my awareness the, the reality of that touch. So we can kind of understand our modern society basically as essentially inculcating a pervasive ontological or existential numbness into our existence, basically by telling us that we're separate, by telling us that all we are is separate individuals, by telling us we're separate from nature, it actually instills numbness in us. So we think the reality is I need to just look after myself and that's what life is all about. And we end up living this life of alienated numbness simply because we've allowed our culture to take away our sense of deep interconnection that is or was already there and is still there. All we need to do is basically open our minds to it, to start to, to actually recognize its existence. Yeah, I think that I think that's happening. Like, you know, I was talking to Thomas Hubel this morning about collective trauma, you know, and, and the, the explosion of interest in just an idea of something like trauma. You know, which when my grandfather was in the World War II invasions, you know, and came back and was deeply traumatized, nobody really had an understanding about that, you know, and yeah. thank God our, our understanding is changing. But that, yeah, that this this trauma or this numbness is um, it sounds like a vicious cycle. Yeah. Like because then, you know, we're all jacked up or we're numbed out and and then we're like, you know. Uh, consuming more, uh, right. watch, watching more entertainment all in all to just you know, not feel the the numbness or the pain that's underneath that perhaps. And maybe this is a good time to like, you know, I, like the, 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 the last chapter of your book, you know, it's really, really um, disturbing, you know, mm -hmm. because you, you start to, you, you lay out like what, this is the way the world, you know, if we look at the world right now and everything that's going on, um, do, are we going to make it in a sense? Like you're exploring that question. And so, um, maybe we could like put that out because I, I want coaches listening to this to, to, to know this story, you know, like I think most of us are waking up to it anyway, but you know, that it, it can be heartbreaking, you know, maybe there's yeah. a role of heartbreak in this, but perhaps you could speak into just like what is going on. And if I could just face that with, there's a lot of people who are feeling like it's never been better than now, you know, like capitalism has brought so many gifts and, I think you have some good arguments about why that might not be the case as well. Um, and you've, and you've named the beautiful things that, that, uh, you know, this paradigm has brought. So anyway, there's a lot in what I just said, but. Yeah, yeah. sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there, there is most definitely a lot. Well, to begin with, with the way that you're describing that last chapter, it's, it's true. I think when we truly recognize 
our interdependence and our identity itself expands from just as an individual to basically our communities, all of humanity and all of life itself. That is both beautiful, awe-inspiring and can be kind of mind-blowing. And at the same time, we can't expand that identity without feeling a deep sense of the disaster that is being unleashed by our civilization right now on the living earth. I mean, we see it most obviously in the headlines with climate breakdown and just um, almost like despairingly, this complete fiasco that just uh, took place in COP26, where basically the nation states of the world is essentially officially threw in the towel to say, right, we're not actually going to do anything about this accelerating disaster we're heading towards. But even climate breakdown itself is really just a symptom of something even greater, which is this ecological devastation being caused by the very success of this reductionist uh, worldview that has been so incredibly effective at seeing nature as a resource and exploiting it, that it's now beginning to eviscerate the very richness of life on earth itself. So we're heading towards really, uh, at this rate, an accelerating pathway quite um, essentially towards a civilizational collapse. And this is something that is described not just by um, a few sort of activists who are just tearing their hair out in outrage, but really deep, thoughtful climate scientists, a prominent um, uh, climate scientist looking at what's going on in the world right now and recognizing that we are actually, we've already passed uh, four of the nine uh, boundaries that they've identified that we, we sort of need to be in if we're going to maintain uh, an ongoing civilization, not just climate breakdown, um, but uh, things like deforestation, uh, things like the nitrogen cycle, all the different ways in which we've been sort of eviscerating the earth. So we need to understand, to my mind, recognizing this interconnectedness is also feeling into this and realizing that we right now are driven by a system that's based on exploitation. And this global capitalist system essentially works on taking what you were describing when you were talking about what Thomas Hubel was, was looking at, that kind of um, the ways in which culturally, collectively, we relate to trauma by trying to, wanting to avoid it and wanting to uh, like find some other way to not deal with the deeper issues, the deeper feelings. Our whole um, capitalist system is designed to make money from that. It's designed to actually um, keep us on what's called the hedonic treadmill, where as soon as we get something, um, then we'd, we, we get attracted to want something even more and more. And that's, that's conscious. That's something that in the early part of the 20th century, the pioneers of consumerism realized was a possible way to make tons of money from uh, exploiting human needs. And they've developed this system in the last 100 years to do it so effectively. But as long as we're in this system, we don't just get alienated ourselves. We also become part of the destructive machinery that basically is leading us towards the um, really higher and higher potential of collapse. So what that requires in my mind is recognizing it first and recognizing 
that each of us who live in uh, privileged lives you know, in the global north or um, who are one of the wealthier people who are actually getting the benefits of this uh, cycle of destruction um, to to feel into what that means. Now, that doesn't mean to then just feel a sense of shame and guilt and like, oh, I should like um, I should just stop doing anything I'm doing. But to recognize that as people with privilege, as people with the ability to have relatively greater power um, to affect what goes on, we need to engage. We actually are called by life itself to transform our ways of being, our ways of relating to ourselves and family, to our communities, and to engage in some of these destructive systems and to recognize that um, really as life um, within us, we are driven to actually try to turn things around, to allow, um, to look at fundamental shifts that are needed in our civilization in order to have a turn towards a more regenerative path. Mm. I, I, um, this way I think you bring in some really, because yeah, the, the question is like, um, do we, I, I felt, I felt quite depressed and brokenhearted at times. I have a two-year-old daughter and it's been difficult for me to reconcile Yeah, I, with myself. It's more easy, but with her, it's like, she's just this beautiful, innocent being and to reconcile the path she may walk in her life is, it's not something I've done yet, you know? And, um, and yet, you know, if I feel that heartbreak, if I actually allow myself to feel it, I, I can feel that it, it, it doesn't, um, lead me to a place of apathy, but it stirs something inside of me and not, not a kind of um, activism, which is, you know, um, there's so much polarization in the world right now. And, um, you know, I don't feel like I want to add to that, but th this is where I think you bring in some ideas that really touched me. You know, you mentioned um, the uh, you call it hedonic kind of uh, cycle we get into, but there's, um, eudaimonia. I don't know how you right. pronounce that exactly, yeah. but I think this eudaimonia. is a really brilliant yeah. idea. Um, so we could talk maybe more about the, yes. the culture you envision yeah. and some of the principles yeah. on which that might might live. Yeah. Yes. No. Absolutely. I, th I thank you for that. And um, well, yes, I do feel there is a lot that I touch on in the book that does lead to a sense of deep, profound grief once we realize the enormity of what our civilization is doing right now. And I feel that is necessary um, to really look at that clearly. But I, for me personally, and I hope in the writing itself, to me, it doesn't end there. It doesn't sort of like stay in that, in that grief. To me, real hope, true hope for where our future of humanity might lead comes from looking clearly at just how deeply things need to change how bad essentially things are and are heading um, and what is needed to turn around. But from that place, then we have the ability to actually look at truly different potentials. Um, and you, you talk about this, I, this uh, contrast that I talk about between hedonia and eudaimonia, which actually was put out more than 2000 years ago by Aristotle, um, who interestingly, uh, he was an ancient Greek too, um, but was actually at odds with Plato. And his ideas were actually much more consistent with what we see in modern systems thinking or even in uh, Neo-Confucian thought or whatever. But his, his notion was that 
hedonia refers to just this kind of um, the short-term uh, needs that we have. That um, it can be anything from wanting pleasure, pleasurable sensation, or whatever, to other things like just wanting to feel safe or um, get esteem from others or status, all these kind of things. And he he dis- he contrasted that with this concept of eudaimonia, which basically is a sense of pursuing our true nature as human beings. And his sense was that when for any creature in life, whether it's an animal or a plant or a human being, what they're really here on earth to do is to fulfill their true nature. That is what eudaimonia really refers to, a, a sense of really expanding to our full identity and living our lives in that place. That is something that can be translated in modern terms as um, looking at in sort of terms of positive psychology as um, living according to sustained well-being. Or in um, the Buddhist tradition, there's this word sukha, which um, also relates to that. It's like at the very deep layer, um, feeling a sense of true well-being, a true um, equanimity with life, as opposed to dukkha. Uh, in Buddhism, which refers to essentially that hedonic treadmill, that sense of never being satisfied, always feeling that something's wrong, which is, of course, how most of us uh, do live much of our lives. Um, But so like through things like Buddhist tradition or positive psychology, we can learn on an individual basis to find those things which allow us to pursue that eudaimonia, our full sense of well-being. Um, But we can also look at this from a total societal perspective. And we can recognize that it's possible for our our society to be structured in different ways. It doesn't have to be a civilization based on wealth accumulation, extraction, and exploitation. And we can envisage what would a society look like if we're actually based on setting the conditions for eudaimonia, for sustained well-being for all, Uh, for all human beings, as well as all of life. Um, And while that might seem far from our modern society, we actually can look at, start to think through, what would it look like if we did have what some people are calling an ecological civilization, a civilization based on life-affirming principles. And that's where I get a, a lot of hope, because right now, there are so many different groups of people around the world and different areas of the human experience from economics to business to technology to education to um, spiritual transformation all in these different areas looking towards this different aspects of the same thing moving us as a human uh, superorganism if you will as a human uh, shared uh, community towards a place of well-being rather than this, this destructive path that our dominant culture has us on Mm. I mean, if you even if you look at things like this, the great resignation that's taking place in the US, I think, but it probably, you know, yeah. from the pandemic, you know, people retiring, uh, quitting these jobs that they just feel suddenly, you know, it's like the blink, you know, something just awakened inside them where they're like, I don't want to do this, you know, um, because it's about meaning, I think it's about like this, this doesn't have meaning for me anymore. I can't justify being here. A lot of these people, it sounds like have very little safety nets, you know, That's and yet right. they're being called to, to make those drastic actions. And so I, it does leave me with, with hope that like there's a kind of nonlinear 
way that this could emerge through. And you you, you also speak about um, fractal flourishing. I thought that was another yeah. beautiful idea that fits in with this. Could you explain what you mean by that? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's a, a key concept. Um, and the the term fractal flourishing, uh, the, this word fractal is one that I'm sure a number of people will be familiar with, but maybe a little unclear what it really means. Basically, a fractal is a pattern that repeats itself at different scales, different levels of scale. And what is fascinating, and this is really one of the elements of, uh, that arises from people who study complexity and who study these systems uh, of life. And what they see is that fractals are everywhere in the natural world. You see it in, in the patterns of leaves, of ferns, of patterns of lightning. We see that in our own bodies and the patterns of our lungs and our neural networks. Basically, every, almost everything in nature is fractal um, in that self-organized design. And the thing about fractal flourishing is recognizing that in nature and in human society too, um, you have parts within parts within parts and true health only can arise when each of those different levels of scale are in fact healthy. Like if I have one part of my body is not well, like let's say um, I've got some problems within the cells in my heart and my heart's not pumping properly, um, then it'll affect other parts of my body. It'll affect my lungs. It'll affect my ability to exercise. And then it'll affect the other muscles in my body. So all different elements of my body will be affected by one system that's not in full health. And if we apply that to human society, we recognize that flourishing is not the zero-sum game that our dominant society tells us that it is. Like we, we, we sort of, we're told by our society, oh, you should do well at the expense of others. And that's, it's all about this competition. But we were talking earlier at the beginning of this conversation about how life itself evolved its complexity through mutually beneficial symbiosis. And if we look at how a society, a true ecological civilization could work, Fractal flourishing plays a huge part, recognizing that the health of each individual within that society is required for the overall society to be healthy. And similarly, the full health of the society is required for each individual to truly flourish. Um, and an example to show that actually has been the incredible studies done uh, by this um, so these team of social psychologists called Wilkinson and Pickett, looking at the effects of inequality. Um, they wrote a book called The Spirit Level, looked at very rigorously at the effects of inequality in society. And what they found is that the societies with the greatest inequality also have the greatest levels of um, lack of health, of uh, um, psychological breakdown, of basically unhappiness in their society. And what's fascinating is not just the people who were lowered down in the um, scale of equality who were so unhappy, even the people who should have been better off, yeah, but the, who actually were higher up in that inequality, also suffered much more greatly than other comparable societies which were more equal, because you have a loss of trust in the society. And then those who are doing better feel they've got to put up the barricades and, and they've got to worry about their own safety because um, they've like people are so dis dispossessed and disaffected around them. And so inequality 
leads to actually unhappiness in society across the board. So that's just one example of how um, this notion of fractal flourishing, that the different layers of a society all need to be in good health for true well-being to be attained. I wonder if you could say like how you might see this playing out. I mean, it's an impossible question, but because I, I think like you paint this really clear picture for me of like there's you know this one dominant worldview and it has a set of principles and you know those principles have an outcome and you know that that means that the, the ecological devastation loss of meaning and yet um, we're, we're kind of like entranced by it or we're you know I can even feel the part in me that, that it's like oh yeah but I'm comfortable you know I'm like I can feel the pain I can see the devastation but. Uh, you know, what do I have to give up in order to, to what sacrifices do I have to make? And, and, and so um, when I hear you speak, it's like, it starts to open up this sense of like, yeah, but you're, you're not giving anything up. You're, you're actually gaining the stuff you didn't know you'd, you right. wanted. But actually we are waking up to the fact that we want it now, you know, it's like that, that level of meaning and interconnectedness and overall, the overall well-being that comes rather than at the expense of others is actually like just that coming in you know flooding into societies um and i guess my question is like how, how might you see this happening like um i mean you can't predict it but uh i'm just going to make you i'm going to put that question to you anyway <laughs> like how you might see it playing right. out yeah yeah well i think the most important thing to realize is and um, to sort of try to get a sense of how deep transformational cultural change does happen in societies. Um, and, and these kind of changes only happen when the society itself begins to unravel for one reason or another. And one way of sort of thinking about it is imagine all these um, like ideas and thoughts and practices of a society being like a tightly woven fabric. And if it's really tightly woven, and everything's really kind of tightly connected. You could try to tear that fabric, but you can't do any, you can't actually have any impact on it. But now imagine that fabric itself, those connections beginning to unravel, which is basically what's going on in our society right now with climate breakdown, these incredible inequalities causing everyone, so many people to feel disaffected. Like you say, things like the great resignation happening in the States is just one tiny symptom of that. But as things begin to unravel, it opens up the more uh, degrees of freedom to kind of re retie those knots, basically, to take those strands apart and reweave them from within. And I think that's what we need to realize in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, tragically, as we look at where we're headed, um, I see really no other scenario other than continued unraveling of these things in our society. We're going to go through periods of great trauma which I think really something like sort of the COVID uh, experience of the last couple of years will feel like child's play compared to what we really have to look forward to. Um, I feel there's every reason to feel a great sense of um, uh, almost doom about that. And at the same time, that is where this opportunity comes for true transformation. You mentioned the word nonlinear uh, before. And I think that's what we need to understand that the, tr um, the changes that happen in society oftentimes turn out to be nonlinear. We see that historically. We see, you know, back in the 
1890s, Emmeline Pankhurst uh, yeah, campaigning for the women's right to vote, for women's suffrage. It, it seemed like a hopeless cause. And within a couple of decades, and it was fully accepted. And when and then sudden within a few uh, a couple of decades more, all different democratic countries around the world accepted that. And we see that in things like Greta Thunberg um, sitting there alone in front of the Swedish parliament for uh, days at a time, just a couple of years ago. And suddenly, uh, like something takes off and there's millions of school children going on a climate strike all around the world. And these things happen in the most unexpected ways. And I think that what each of us needs to recognize is that we are part of that uh, reweaving. We have the ability to be part of actually creating the future together. The future is not really something like a spectator sport. The future is it was almost like a verb. It's something that we are all co-creating. And once we realize that, it gives a sense of responsibility, but also a sense of uh, kind of liberation that comes from that. We realize that actually each action we take every day, the things that we choose to do, and the smaller decisions we take, the bigger decisions we take, the conversations we have, they're all part of us um, choosing, either whether we want to be part of this destructive society and um, leading towards potential collapse, or do we want to be part of this life-affirming society? We can actually live into the future we want through our actions and through our choices each day. And when enough of us are doing that and recognizing that in others, that is what can lead to this incredible, powerful, nonlinear transformation that really our society needs. Mm. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, how I, I, I haven't got a great understanding of it, but I think it happened in several countries at once, you know, and there was no way the um, right. Soviet Union at the time could could control that. You know, it was a, an, almost like um, impossibly erupting in different countries at once exactly. you know, within within days apart, you know, or hours apart. So mm -hmm. um, it's it a, a great example. Yeah. 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 Which. Because if I use my my like linear thinking mind, it just doesn't compute right now. It's like because right. the, the pace is happening so slow. This has been for me um, an incredibly rich conversation. Um, I, I, I want to thank you in a moment because I just have one last question, which is like, what um, what is exciting you now about your work? You finished this book, like. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you do. Maybe you're chilling out or I don't get that impression. What are you yeah. up to? Like what's grabbing you? Yeah. Well, thanks for, for asking that. Actually, right now I'm in the middle of um, offering a six week course on the themes of this book, The mm. Web of Meaning, which is, is a fantastic experience. It's, um, uh, we had uh, way more people sign up than I even expected. And it's an, um, we're going through these themes uh, but like with two hour long sessions over six weeks, and it feels so rich and alive. It's truly um, uh, energizing for me. But over the longer term, um, what well, we've talked uh, today about this concept of an ecological civilization, this sense of what's actually possible that people are working on all around. And I think part of what has been missing is the ability for people to really envisage an actual alternative to this destructive, capitalist, exploitive civilization we're in right now. So I'm actually uh, already working on the framework for my next book, which will be looking at 
pathways to this uh, ecological civilization. And it's going to be called future flourishing, pathways to an ecological civilization. And look at what that actually means and show how doable it really is, but show how we, by looking at these deep underpinnings of what we need to change, we can actually flesh out this possibility and actually realize that so many of us, so many millions of us all around the world are actually right now in the work we're doing, working towards this transformed civilization as possible. I was going to ask, like, do you feel like, I mean, I know you're, you're answering this question already, but do you feel like a lone player in this? But no, you, there are, this is a conversation which is alive around the world that you can, you can go and, you know, um, be informed by to create this book as well. Yeah. Oh, very much so. I mean, I just see my role really is simply showing the connections between what uh, is actually being done by so many amazing groups and visionaries and uh, wonderful people all around the world. In just the same way that when I wrote this book, The Web of Meaning, about shifting our worldview, I'm sort of not claiming that I came up with some answer to this or that, but I simply was trying to show how these great insights of modern scientists and traditional uh, wisdom holders, actually, just by linking them together, we can see what arises. Similarly, this notion of an ecological civilization is not my term. It's, um, it's being described and envisioned by others. And there's so many people working to it. So I see my job more than anything is just to help people see the team that they're already on and recognize that by seeing we're all part of this amazing team, it gives an extra coherence, an extra sense of power to this um, this path that's already being uh, trailblazed. Mm. Jeremy, thanks so much today. I, I'm really, really happy to share this with our community. I hope many people listen to it and are impacted by it and, and touched and feel called into action. And um, so, so thanks for, for being you, actually, and, and, you know, being in your place doing that. You know, you described that um, fractal flourishing. It feels like you're finding your place in the fractal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, th thank you so much, Joel, for uh, this really rich conversation. And I just love all the places you've been exploring uh, with me today. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And I, I do want to, where can we find out more about your work? The six-week oh. course, it sounds like it's already happening, but yes, maybe you'll but run it again. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'll probably be offering it again next year. Um, and um, you basically, the simplest way to uh, find out about what I offer is just go to my website is jeremylent.com easy to remember um, and uh, there you can just explore what I've written about and also you have the opportunity to sign up for my newsletter where that way you can stay attuned if you want to know about things like courses in the future or other um, other articles I write or whatever it might be here we are, we're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com, put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time. <laughs>